and welcome to the Beervana podcast, Patrick. Uh, hi, Jeff. Uh, longtime listeners or listener, I'm not sure how many we have, will know that you normally uh, introduce things, so you can tell something's afoot right off the bat. Uh, that's right. Uh, it's good to have you in town, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> I've been uh, out calivanting around. So we're, we're, uh, we're shoehorning a, a podcast in between trips uh, far and wide. And apologies to listeners, our podcasting schedule, which we tried to uh, make every other week, has fallen down a little bit because I've been out of town so much on this book tour. So anyway, let's introduce ourselves. Uh, I am uh, Jeff Allworth, and with me is Patrick Emerson, who is a professor of economics at Oregon State University. And he is, we're going to look into his mind today um, and have a little discussion about economics. Um, he is also uh, a research fellow at the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at Sao Paulo School of Economics, C-Micro. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can find him blogging infrequently at Beeronomics. Yeah, my, my blogs, these, my blog posts mostly these days are just uh, flogging the pod. So uh, I save all my good stuff for the pod. Jeff. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and with me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of the recently re uh, released Beer Bible from Workman Publishing. See him soon in a town near you. And that's not an exaggeration. You're off to where now? Headed to the East Coast uh, on, tomorrow, actually. And I will be in Philadelphia on Saturday, Jersey City on Sunday, Brooklyn Monday. Boston on Wednesday, Portland, Maine on Thursday, and then Durham, North Carolina on Friday or Saturday. Wow, I'm tired just <laughs> just thinking about it. Uh, but you should have great weather while you're there, I hear. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking for uh, clear skies. Actually, I, you know, I miss. It's been too clear here, so maybe a, a nice little a nice little hurricane. Like a, yeah, uh, kiss of Joaquin <laughs> will be all right. Well, well, well. Good luck with that. You're also the author of Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Publishing, also out now, correct? Yes, it is out, and it's not getting a lot of attention, and I'm not flogging it enough um, because of this other book. So, yeah, cider heads, yeah, take note. Cider's the new craft beer, folks. Being there at the beginning. It's true. Uh, we'll have to uh, talk about that sometime. Maybe we'll do a pod on cider. Yeah, we should do a cider pod. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get into our topic today. Unless you have something to plug, are you doing anything interesting? Oh, I have nothing to plug. All right. I'm a, you know, professor. I've got <laughs> professorial things to do. This nothing at all to blog. Right. No, um, interesting, but not perhaps newsworthy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, flip the usual script, and instead of um, going into a beer style and talking about the the uh, production of beer, let's look at uh, some of the economic issues that have been causing a lot of anxiety in the beer world lately. Um, last Wednesday, many of you know that we had the Great American uh, Beer Fest last year, last week, and Wednesday, the day before it kicked off, Anheuser-Busch InBev announced the acquisition of yet another small craft brewery. Uh, this one was LA's Golden Road, a brewery I did not know existed until that was announced, but there you are. Um, and a week or two before that, Heineken announced that it had taken over half of Lagunitas, which was the is the 11th largest brewery, not craft brewery, in the United States. Um, the sixth largest former, I guess, formerly craft brewery. <laughs> um, we these are becoming pretty familiar in the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. uh, every every seems like every month uh, we hear something. AB InBev has picked up uh, Blue Point. Ten Barrel, Elysian, and now Golden Road, um, and the, you know earlier on they had Goose Island. That was kind of the, their their first right. craft brewing acquisition. Um, Belgium's Duval Mortgat Group uh, picked up Firestone Walker recently, add, and added that to Boulevard, which they added a year ago or something. Um, and they had already had Omegong. And then another interesting thing that we're seeing a lot of is private equity. Yep. Um, investing uh, either whole uh, in buying breweries outright or investing partly in them and uh, that list includes Full Sail, Oscar Blues, Sweetwater, Uinta, Southern Tier and then just this week we heard that uh, a private equi equity group was going to invest 15% into Dogfish Head. That's right. So a lot going on and I think that uh, at this last GABF I know I heard a lot of people muttering about AB and Bev, and, and, and the word Lagunitas came up a few times, too. So That's uh, right, yeah. So I think there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of questions about what this means about the future of craft beer. 
And one of the things that uh, that I think is even more interesting uh, and is a way to kind of introduce this topic is to think about this proposed merger of uh, AB InBev um, and uh, SAB, uh, I don't even know, SAB Miller, SAB Miller course. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so that we should break that out a little bit. Um, it's SAB Miller in the rest of the world, and here it's Miller Coors, mm -hmm. uh, except for I think in Canada it's Molson Coors. Molson Coors, yeah. So it's this uh, many tentacled <laughs> Yeah, you don't know, know what to call it, but in general it's SAB, it's AB InBev who's um, thinking about merging with SAB Miller. Um, this would create uh, uh, both are big, gigantic global beer conglomerates. This would create a mega conglomerate. Uh, just to give you an example of the scale, AB InBev right now uh, produces over 400 million hectoliters of beer. Um, the next biggest one is SAB Miller, who produces less than 200 million hectoliters, but they're bigger than Heineken, the, Heineken, the third largest. So if they combine together, they would be more than three times as big as as, uh, as the next biggest, which would be Heineken in the, in the Netherlands. Um, uh, and I mentioned this because I think and that they just to add, yeah. and then they would have um, they would be a truly global company. The SAB um, refers to uh, South African breweries, mm -hmm. and uh, in AB InBev was kind of started in Belgium, but also had a big um, South American. Is it Brazil? Yeah, it was it was, it was a Brazilian uh, uh, entrepreneur who who created. Ambev, um, when he bought uh, Brahma, I think originally, right. and then Antarctica after that, uh, and created this Brazilian brewing conglomerate, Am Ambev, who then became InBev, and they've been on an acquisition streak ever since and been growing and growing. So, truly global company there. That's right. So I think that I think that 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 the sort of the, the narrative starts here, which is that we know that uh, uh, macro the the market for macro loggers is. Uh, um, shrinking um, I was about to say stagnating but it's, it's more than just stagnating it's shrinking uh, the AB used to control uh, something like 50% of the US beer market um, that was steady for years and years but in the last five years or so it's gone down and they now control about 45% um, so there's some and this story I believe is true in all mature markets that we're seeing the companies like Heineken and, and uh, SAB Miller are losing in the in their mature markets. They're losing market share as uh, smaller breweries are are taking over, and people are drinking less beer. They're losing some market share to wine and, and liquor and yeah, and spirits. Just spilled spirits are, are growing uh, rapidly as well. So the sort of the old traditional uh, model that these big breweries are are based on is starting to is starting to um, crack a little bit. Um, I think that that mirrors a trend in general uh, where sort of the the 1950s industrial food products that uh, became so popular are starting to, to wane in popularity, and we're starting to see this new emphasis on sort of local and artisanal products. And I think this is similar. I mean, you can take, for example, the the struggles that McDonald's have been having recently. Their um, their once sort of uh, impenetrable business model is starting to starting to show some some holes. Uh, so I think that I think that that's the the trend overall is we've got these big giant brewing conglomerates. They're still incredibly profitable firms. Their market capitalization is still very large. In fact, I looked at sort of the stock market performance of these big firms over the last five years, and they're, they're still doing okay, but they see the writing on the wall, and they need to figure out this new landscape for uh, for beer. We did a we did a pod a while ago about the, the alcohol pops, the sort of alternative malt beverages that they're, they're producing. So that's one strategy. And another strategy, of course, is to try and figure out what Kraft is doing right, because Kraft, as we know, is growing like gangbusters. Right. Um, and uh, taking little tiny bites of their massive market share, but still, it's a rapidly growing segment, and they're in a segment that's stagnating and, and declining. Yeah. Uh, before we move to the craft beer segment, which I think is where we really want to be, mm -hmm. um, Let's talk about that big merger and whether that alarms you or causes you. Like, if you let's say you were a, a Budweiser fan, um, and and this Budweiser SAB merger was coming in the line, would you be worried about uh, your 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 product? Would you be worried it would get more expensive? Is that yeah? I, so I think there's two there's sort of two perspectives. One is the macro beer fan, the, f the person who 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 likes beers and buys them regularly. What's it going to happen um, to the price of their beer? I'm actually not that not that worried. As an economist, you always balance the fact that market power can lead to price 
upward price pressure. But at the same time, we also know that beer is has very, very large economies of scale, so there might even be some more efficiencies, although I imagine that something as big as ABF right. has probably exhausted all of the efficiencies <laughs> already. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, you, the other thing we talk about is if a, how how contestable a market is, and and there's two aspects of this. Okay. One is can a new uh, company come in and easily compete, and we've seen from craft beer that the answer is kind of yes. Right. Uh, and the other thing is um, there's a lot of price pressure that's going to come from other beverages, as we've seen. So wine and distilled yeah. spirits and craft beer is 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 causing all of these competitive pressures, and keep and I imagine will continue to keep prices. Uh, in check. So I'm not concerned uh, from a macro consumer perspective uh, that this is going to have a big big impact on prices. Right. If I'm a Budweiser drinker, one of the reasons I drink Budweiser is because it's relatively inexpensive. And if it got too expensive, I would no longer. I'd move to something that was more inexpensive. Right. Exactly. And then the other, I guess the other aspect is what about craft beer? Is this something that yeah. craft beer should worry about? Is this sort of the sign of the evil empire becoming so enormous that the, you know, the gravitational pull will suck up everything in, in its in its wake? Uh, and I don't think so either. What I think is that this is a natural reaction. This is a retrenchment that's happening, a natural reaction to a, a, a mature market that's sort of overly mature, it's starting to stagnate, it's starting mm -hmm. to get stale. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what do you do in the face of a, of a stagnating market? Well, you sort of retrench, you consolidate, and uh, go from there. And then, of course, a big part of what we're going to talk about today is the other thing you do is start to figure out what, what other markets are out there, what other, op what, what other opportunities are there, uh, and who seems to be uh, succeeding in, in the beverage, in the adult beverage industry. Well, let's use that as a perfect segue to talk about the, the really obvious big success story, which is craft brewing. In the last uh, 35 years or so that we've had craft brewing, we haven't actually seen a lot of this kind of consolidation. Mm -hmm. um, the craft beer world, I guess maybe because it was so small, it didn't attract attention. Um, it, it wasn't big, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in it. Is that is that the reason why, why all of a sudden are big breweries eyeing these uh, relatively smaller craft breweries? Yeah, I think, I think so. So I think uh, my take is this. The, it's taken a while for craft beer markets to mature. Um, it's been a process of, uh, of uh, growing that demand by sort of taking existing beer drinkers and showing them what craft beer is. New beer drinkers are being introduced to craft first time now. Uh, and over time, the craft beer has become uh, a, a real national phenomenon that's not just these little pockets of regional uh, craft brewing anymore. We, we're seeing craft beers all over the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a real demand, and the growth hasn't stopped. So it wasn't just this um, uh, this short little burst of growth, but we're seeing the sustained growth and this continued increase in, in demand for craft beer. Uh, and um, people take note. So whether it's a, a big brewer that's trying to figure out uh, uh, different um, aspects of their of their business that they can grow or whether it's a, a private equity firm that's looking just for basically a good out a good place to park capital um, this is a very successful industry right now and is it the same industry I mean there's it's sell, there's craft breweries sell beer obviously mm -hmm. big breweries sell beer um, but is it are they actually the same when we talk about markets um, you know you've got a market for potatoes and you got a market for cars and you got a market for s software mm -hmm. you have a market for mass market loggers and you have a market for for craft beer, are they are they interchangeable, or how does that dynamic factor into here? Yeah, I, I think I think actually they're they're quite a bit different, and I've I've said this a number of times, and why I think uh, I'm not too concerned about what's going on in the sort of macro beer world in terms of craft beer, because I really do think that they've carved out a a, dis, a, fa a fairly distinct market. Um, of course, there's crossover, and of course, there's going to be price pressure either way, um, and there's going to be competitive pressures. They also have sort of just the physical uh, competition that goes on in terms of store shelves and, and tap handles. So absolutely, they inhabit a very similar market. Um, but it's different in, in, in a way that sort of McDonald's is different from your local brew pub. Mm -hmm. uh, um, McDonald's exists there. It's sort of an, an alternative, but it's, I, I think, perceived very differently than meal at your local uh, your local brew pub is so I think that craft beer is 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 um, unique in that it's still it it's a it's an industrial product but it's in a way that's still quite local and quite artisanal um, it's very much uh, embedded in sort of local culture local personalities often as well um, and I think that that's that's really what's unique to craft beer and I think that's 
what's interesting is that that's the kind of stuff that the corporate structure of big beer just can't replicate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. we've seen that. We've it, seen them try to make forays for decades, really, into this, and they haven't been able to. They have like sock puppet breweries, and <laughs> that's uh, right. you know, the, we've seen some some effort uh, with with Shock Top and Blue Moon, like you mentioned, but on the on the neighborhood level, we haven't really seen. A <coughs> Excuse me, I haven't seen a lot of success. Yeah, given given the the, the sheer size and might of these um, uh, breweries, you would think that by now they would, if if they could have, they would have conquered conquered the market. And they tried, and they have, as you say, probably two sort of modest successes. Blue Moon and Shock Top still exist, but there's been a lot of other ones that that never quite uh, gained any traction. Um, I had a very interesting discussion years ago. I took the economics club from Oregon State University over to Rogue uh, Brewing in, um, in Newport, and Jack Joyce, um, now deceased uh, owner of Rogue, uh, sat down with us, and we had a fascinating talk. And one of the things he said uh, that he thought was particularly interesting was um, interesting to me <clears throat> was that he said, you know, these these Big brewers are fantastic brewers. They have amazing technology. They have access to all these uh, fantastic ingredients. If they wanted to produce an absolute top-notch uh, craft beer, they could. And so why don't they? And why do they have such trouble in this in this market? And his take was, look, their whole corporate structure is not built around this. They have a marketing department. They've got a sales department. What they want to know is, are you going to build a new product? How do we, how do we market it? How do we sell it? And they want to see sales immediately. Uh, and it's really this sort of corporate structure that leads to an amazing impatience that you don't have time to let these brands grow. And they're not local by nature of these big corporations. You've launched something nationally. Right. You try to sell it nationally. And uh, unless it gets national traction, it just doesn't work. So their whole sort of corporate structure just doesn't lend, lend uh, uh, itself well to competing um, with these local craft brewers. Uh, yeah, I had an experience that was pretty similar uh, to that from the other side um, a year or two or three ago. Um, Miller Coors brought their, some, some of their craft uh, products to town for mm -hmm. us to try. And they have, a little, they have a series of little tiny breweries, like little test breweries that make these uh, beers. I think it's all in the R&D chain. Mm -hmm. um, and so they brought them. Some of them were from Chicago area, I think maybe Milwaukee and some from Colorado area. And they were, you know, they were what we would recognize as craft beers. Uh, and I was really surprised. They had this thing. It was a private event for mainly um, inside industry people, but they invited a few riders. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the Coors people and I said, why don't, you know, why don't you put this stuff on tap around town? Why don't you push this stuff out? You know, you, you, when you, you have a lo some of these local breweries uh, in Chicago, let's say. Chicago's a pretty good beer town. Why don't you try to put these things in the marketplace? And they said basically what you said. We don't know how to do that. We don't know. Are we we know you know we know how to trigger uh, an entire marketing uh, campaign, but we don't know how to take um, 15 kegs down to you know pubs are down at, around Chicago right. and promote them on social media and get voice you know word of mouth kind of uh, promotion out, which is what the craft brewers know. That's that's all that that's they have to work that way, exactly. and that's that's how they work. So they were at a, they were kind of buffaloed, and they were looking at all their products as potential. Uh, new blue moon kind of things. I think they're doing these bigger, they're thinking of it in terms of how do we take what we learn at the s small level and put it into our huge network and, you know, make a national beer. Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, I just a uh, just quick little anecdote. I was uh, going to graduate school in Ithaca, New York uh, when um, Dan Mitchell was getting uh, Ithaca Brewing started. Um, and what I remember uh, from him is him, him loading up kegs of beer in the back of his pickup truck and driving all around the the southern tier and uh, the Finger Lakes region of New York, just trying to get a tap handle here and there whenever they whenever they can. So it's a real sort of labor-intensive, local, personal personality-driven uh, business at that at this level. So this this kind of makes obvious sense. Uh, this logic makes makes it seem pretty obvious why if you're a big brewery like Anheuser Busch, you're going to want to buy one of these small breweries because you can't. You haven't been able to figure out how to do the neighborhood level beer sales like some of these breweries do. Mm -hmm. So it seems like this is uh, it makes obvious sense that you would buy a you know an Elysian or a yeah. And so this is exactly why I'm I'm fairly sanguine. So I guess the obvious question is how concerned should you be if you're a fan of craft beer or if you're a craft brewer yourself? How concerned should you be about all this influx of 
um, capital into into craft to craft brewing, uh, and we'll talk about sort of general craft uh, capital inflows um, in a little bit when we talk about these um, these private equity firms. But let's just talk about the foray of of the big brewers into these in these markets. And and I I remain fairly unconcerned um, for exactly these reasons: is that uh, these are uh, local markets that clearly they've they've uh, given up trying to do this sort of national corporate-led strategy, and now they're getting very local. And I think what they've learned over the years is that when you buy these local breweries, you can't just sort of uh, bring them into the corporate fold and try to turn them into a national brand. It doesn't right. work. That's exactly what doesn't work. So what they've done is bought, bought lots of little local breweries who have done a good job building a uh, local reputation, a local brand, and sort of create this archipelago of of little breweries. Now, these little breweries will have some advantages. They'll have access to the AB, the Anheuser-Busch um, distribution channels, for example. Sorry, it's not, it's just ABM does now. Yeah. Uh, but their distribution channels, uh, um, perhaps uh, uh, bottling lines, packaging, other other uh, aspects that might give them maybe a slight local price advantage. Price, uh, price discounts on barley and hops. Price maybe. discounts on barley and hops, maybe higher quality barley and hops if, if they can... Manage it. Although I think, at least in this region, that's not necessarily true. Uh, so yes, yeah, so there might be some competitive advantages, but I don't think that that's going to have a big disruptive effect. At least not in the short term or medium term. I'm pretty sanguine about these these acquisitions in the in the short and medium term, uh, because I think basically we're going to see breweries operate uh, the way they have before. What's fascinating to me as an economist, and I think that this is a question that just uh, cannot yet be answered, is what will happen to the demand for these beers? Um, how much will it matter to the public that they're owned by AB? We have a local uh, example here of a brewery that wasn't necessarily the obvious choice for a buyout, but Ten Barrel Brewing uh, from Bend, Oregon, uh, was bought out by uh, AB InBev. There was a big uh, outcry among the, the beer geeks, yeah. um, but I haven't yet seen any real... Uh, impact on their sales, and I imagine that for most people, they have no idea, and they're still just buying the the beer because they've heard about the brand, they like the uh, the beers they brew, and um, but it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. And we have w w one example of that in Goose Island, uh, which was purchased five years ago mm -hmm. or something by uh, AB, and is has just continued to make more and more and more beer. Um, they have nationalized that a little bit. They have their wheat beer brewed. Uh, offsite and so longer brewed in Chicago, and they can distribute that nationally. For the most part, they've been investing a ton of money in the barrel room. Apparently, uh, Goose Island now has the biggest barrel room in the world, mm -hmm. um, and they have uh, expanded their line of uh, expensive barrel-aged products, their sour products, all those things. So, yeah, exactly the kind of prof uh, products that AB InBev would never be able to do on a sort of at the big corporate level. Yeah, and when they come out with Bourbon County Stout, which is still not nowhere near big enough production to meet demand, people go crazy for it. So I think the answer is at least, it's, we can say it's a qualified um, success for that model. People don't seem to, there's an initial you know, outcry, but then it, it kind of goes away. I mean, it, I think it really helps when you have a local brewery. People can go to the brewery. They can go and see that barrel room in, in Chicago at Goose Island. Probably really changes people's views. I mean, we're humans. It's hard to, it's hard to relate. Uh, and keep anger at a faceless owner somewhere that you can't even see when you can see a brewery right there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the other thing I think is interesting is that the you know one strategy, if the strategy was to try and sort of create national craft beer brands, mm -hmm. there were other obvious breweries to buy. You could go after Sierra Nevada. You could go right. after Deschutes. You could go after. Uh, um, uh, Stone, maybe I'm trying to think of. Well, and Lagunitas. So maybe there's different strategies. AB strategy is not to do that, but Heineken has just purchased 50% of a brewery that does have national distribution, and so that's interesting. Will Lagunitas, who had this whole reputation, their whole branding strategy was countercultural, you know, very California, uh, kind of a wink and a nod about the cannabis culture of California. Mm -hmm. um, they become a big national brand where people don't relate to that stuff, um, what happens to the brand? Does it lose its its distinctiveness? Um, it's, we'll have to wait and see. I think this, some of these questions can't be answered. Yeah, yeah. So that this will all be 
for an economist, this is all wonderfully fascinating stuff. I'm really kind of quite glad all this stuff is happening because it'll be fascinating to watch how it all plays out over the next uh, five, ten, ten years. I think we'll start getting some answers, but it'll take a while uh, to see um, how these strategies are going to play out. So speaking of um, mass market loggers and uh, um, developing a thirst, as we always do. Uh, we, yes. Uh, we, we typically taste some beer uh, in this. And since we're not going to be talking about beer, we're, we're going to um, uh, talking about the way beer is made in, uh, in, in our usual fashion. Uh, we thought maybe we should be tasting some of the beers that uh, we're talking about. So we went down to the, to the uh, local Quickie Mart and picked up... Uh, Three tall boys. That's right, and and this is a perfect this is a perfect Portland uh, Oregon uh, story. We go down to the Quickie Mart, and and there are uh, uh, lots and lots and lots of beer coolers. Uh, <laughs> but we get there, and, and they're all full of craft beer. Yeah. And it's kind of quite hard to find the macro <laughs> the macro lagers. We had to go all the way down to the far corner where there's a little tiny case of a few. Yeah, and not very good selection. There was no regular coolers, only. Uh... Uh, what? We're okay there. Yeah, yeah, it's just recording over the old one. Okay, That's sorry. Right. Not uh, okay. Here it? in the studio, uh, the non-producer got confused. Anyway, yeah, we we didn't see any regular Coors, only Coors Light. Um, we decided not to buy the Miller because we would have had to buy a six-pack, and that seemed absurd. That's right. Uh, so what? What we're? We, I guess we're gonna do a little blind tasting. We'll here. do a blind tasting. We came home with uh, uh, Bud. We had to have a Bud. Uh, king of beers. The king of beers, because it is the king. Uh, and we have a um, we have a, a Modelo Especial. Ah, uh, we'll be the judge of how Especial yeah, which is. is. Which is now an AB InBev product, um, because Gru uh, Grupo Modelo was bought out by AB InBev. Uh, but but nonetheless, we we got that one. Uh, and then we got a Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst. The hipster. The hipsters' choice. The, king, the, hip, the, the macro. The macro brew of, of, of the hipster set. So king. Uh, king of hipsters. Which the hipsters will swear is much better. So we'll 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 be the judges of that. All right. So let's let's uh, we're gonna do a blind tasting. Let's bust those out and we will uh, tell you what we taste. Yeah. So we'll pause now and we'll come back with our tasting. Okay. So we are back. I have uh, poured the beer into three identical glasses. Whose um, designator is on the bottom we can't see um and uh what are your what are your first impressions there jeff my first impression is it smells like my father it's <laughs> the aroma of my youth here i thought you were going to say it smells like being an undergrad well that too but i have an even deeper uh memory yeah my dad used to drink a lot of uh this kind of beer what 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 was his uh beer of choice the cheapest ah yes <laughs> a lesson I learned and took to college with me. Uh, I used to spend my summers in Canada, and my Canadian relatives mm. uh, were distinguished. You were either a, a, a uh, Molson uh, man or a uh, uh, hey, dog. The dog of the pod is, is underfoot. Cooper, our mascot. Yes. At has, least for has, today. Has become aroused by the, the smell of um, mm. fresh macro lager. So one of these is darker than the others. I might uh, be inclined to think it's especial, but just because it's dark and because it's especial. It's just exactly. It looks uh, especial. Uh, uh, sorry to finish my line. You're either Molson or Labatt's uh, mm -hmm. family. We were uh, my my relatives were all Molson. Okay. These beers definitely taste different. You know, I'm going to be heretical and say that's actually not terrible. That's actually not not a bad beer. <clears throat> I don't like. Uh, I don't dislike mass market lagers actually, and I think I'm going to throw a marker down here to all the beer geeks out there. If there's not one mass market lager that you really enjoy that you would actually buy and have on a hot day, mm -hmm. you may be too deep into the weeds. You may have. You may. You may. You may uh, have lost your way. You need to find a nice mass market lager that you can enjoy to fully appreciate the expression of beer in the world yeah maybe we need to do a pod on the, the underappreciated mass market lagers of the world hmm. so actually I, I i'm being completely honest when i when i say it's been a while since i've just sat down and had a straight macro lager and and none of these uh um is uh, uh sorry pondering the three as I look, hmm. watching the effervescence. Uh, 
Um, they're all enjoyable in their own way. I think that one's actually the especial. It tastes. It has the least flavor, and uh, to me. Mm. So let's just paint the picture. So they're all. Uh, I think most people can then can sort of uh, tell what a mess. Uh, imagine what we're looking at here. So we're looking at some uh, pale yellow. Although we do have definitely one that's that's darker. That's got. Uh, maybe a touch of caramel color. That really is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, caramel color is exactly what it looks like. To me. <laughs> it looks like there's a little, <laughs> a little hint of caramel color. I'm gonna guess immediately that that's um, that that's Mexican because that's sort of what I always take as sort of a hallmark of, of Mexican lagers is they th they throw a touch of caramel color in there to make it look a little a little richer. It could be. Uh, I certainly think about that that as the the the, the Dos Equis, uh what, what do they call it? The, there's two Dos Equis. There's the regular and there's the dark, is it? Anyway, the yeah. the darker yeah. version of the Dos Equis is definitely... The there's one that's a green label, I think. Yeah. So that's the good one. And I, and yeah. The <laughs> I was going to say, they taste exactly the same except one. No, one I think no. Kind of <laughs> no, the green label is much better. Uh, I always used to go for the brown label. One thing I learned when I went to the uh, Budweiser Brewery in St. Louis, Missouri, is that they ferment their beer a little bit warmer mm. to produce some esters. And mm -hmm. so I came to this project thinking I will immediately identify the king of beers because it's going to have a bit more estery profile. And the truth is, excuse me, my my palate is not really attuned to these kind of beers, and they and I'm basically having a difficulty. Uh, they 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 taste quite similar, and I can't. Well, now because of your because of your uh, ester comment, I'm gonna undeclare that's the bud. You think this is the bud? I think that's the Modelo because of the caramel coloring, and I think this is the Pabst. Um, what which is better? What's your what's your beer of choice here, and why? You know, I will say that the f the caramel color is a good strategy. Um, yeah. We 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 taste with all of our senses, including our eyes. And when you see a beer that's got just a hint more color to it, it has a little bit of a deeper quality. It seems to be more luxurious and mm -hmm. rich. And in fact, when I taste it, I even feel that it's got a little bit more body. Oh, mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. It seems like the the malt is a little toastier in it. Mm -hmm. And I would not be surprised if that is entirely due to my brain saying ooh, darker must be richer must be richer it must be yeah so yeah, i quite possible i think uh, <laughs> one thing on my on my beer tour that i've been talking to people about is um uh you know t trusting trusting their their palates and and just enjoying what they enjoy um and also recognizing that there's probably a lot of stuff that we're not tasting people have much better palates i know that when i was at the bud brewery i sat in on a tasting mm -hmm. and they had beer from all 20 plants the tasters and mm -hmm. they could distinguish between each one wow it was extraordinary um i can't taste the difference between these three beers particularly so that's how sensitive my palate is and attuned to these things okay so you but let's now for the big reveal you think you have uh identified budweiser modello modello paps and and uh Whichever this one is, is definitely my least favorite. This one, I think you call the most flavorful. Um, I find it the most insipid. But no, I think the that one's the most flavorful. This has the the one that you believe to be Pabst. Definitely has a uh, an adjunct flavor to it. Mm. It's got a real. Um, um, yeah, adjunct flavor. <laughs> I think that's Budweiser. Uh, no, I don't know. I think I'm going to say that I like that one best, the one you're just tr trying now. Uh, yeah, you're right. That could, that could easily be Budweiser. You, you, I do like this dark. I do like the darker one, and I kind of uh, agree with you. Again, I don't know if it's my mind playing tricks on me because of the the way it looks. Um, it does feel slightly fuller body to me. I think you're right. I, I imagine that's entirely due to a trick of the eye. Uh, but uh, and I also think that I, that the power of suggestion has now um, uh, infused my brain because I, I I'm convincing myself that there's slightly more esters in this one, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I like it the best. All right, so I'm going to declare this one my winner. It's not the it's uh it's the it's the one I believe to be bad, but we'll find out. 
I my favorite is the darker beer, the rich, luxurious, uh, rich, perhaps yes. especial flavor. Uh, yeah, it does actually taste Mexican. I think it's got to be especial. I think and these it is. these are a pick'em. I think it is. Okay, so, I, so I'll go I'll go with you just that way. I can't be shamed. Or we'll, we'll both go down together, or we'll. Uh, so you you, know. You're gonna you agree with my bud. My, my call on the bud? I think I think so. And I, I also remember we did this years and years ago. We did a macro Pilsner taste off. And I remember that Budweiser was, was favored by some and, and uh, rejected by some for having such a smooth kind of in, un, uh, unknowable flavor. Yeah. Uh, and to me, it, it has kind of – it's really hard for me to get anything out of it. So. All right. So lift up the glasses and let's, let's do right, the big so reveal. The, so, so the what? one that, that Patrick believes is the estuary Budweiser. My is, choice. His choice, number two. Number two. And number two is, in fact, Bud. Oh, very oh, nice. King of beers now once I'm, again. Now I'm feeling yes. like we're, uh, and we're cooking with oil. That's two. The, the, the darker yep. uh, color one I'm holding up now is number three. And number three is, in fact, Modelo Especial. Uh, oh, we are good. Nice. And then, of course, Pabst. Pabst with a ribbon one. So, hipsters, I'm afraid I have to disagree with your beer of choice. It's true. Pabst was the uh, – we chose as our favorites the other two beers. So, That's there you right. go. All right, so if you're looking for a good macro lager, then uh, there you go. Off to off to Budweiser or to Modelo Especial, you go. The truth is, I love Pacifico, and if we'd had Pacifico here, I would have been able to dead eye it because I drink a fair amount of Pacifico. There's no way you would have told, been able to tell the difference between Pacifico and any other Mexican beer. I am a Pacifico fan, and I can tell. And I will. I okay. So in the future, I will challenge you to a Mexican beer taste off because I don't believe that. We, One minute. we I often order Pacifico. But I often think when I'm drinking Pacifico, yeah, it's absolutely, I couldn't tell the difference between this or Dos Equis or Modelo or... No, it tastes wonderful. No. It's a superior macro. See, this is, you don't defend a macro, you're just, there's something wrong with you. And um, even if you fooled yourself into thinking that... It's, it's true, better. though, you know, actually, now thinking about it, the, the one time I do have macro beers, it's always Mexican, it's almost always Mexican lagers when I'm, when I'm yeah, off eating Mexican food or probably Tex-Mex food. Yeah, and I bet you don't regret that you're drinking it either. I bet you enjoy it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sort of part of the experience. Okay, so. uh, Let's come back to the topic at hand. Uh, Now that we've crowned Modelo and Bud, actually both AB and Bev products. Oh, it's true. So pretty soon soon all macro macro lager will be AB and Bev or Heineken. That's right. Um, Do you you know who to have them send that check to? AB and Bev? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, by the way, hey, yeah, by no. the way, we need a sponsor of the pod. It's true. Uh, we, 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 we could use maybe a couple better microphones and, uh, and some better production equipment. But uh, so ABMF, if you're out there. That's right. We, we, we will whore ourselves. Oh, sorry. We will. Uh, we will. Family, family podcast here. Yeah. <laughs> we're definitely for sale. We're cheap. 50 bucks and, and, you're, and we're yours, man. <laughs> uh Okay, well, let's get back to the the uh, the uh, the issue of of uh, big brewing. One thing that I was kind of interested in is is the beer market a different kind of market in 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 type if you compare it to like the car market or the software market or any you know each each one of these functions a little differently. Is how is beer uh, a distinctive market? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. It's one that I've pondered a lot. Uh, in sort of the, the the way that the beer industry evolved and and, and evolved into these big giant macro lager, um, the industry looked a lot like any other industry. Uh, it was a product that uh, was being produced on a national scale. It was being advertised on a national scale. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, money and time um, put into uh, creating these big brands. And you were trying to produce a product that was identical, and, and, and you could you could identify it anywhere at any time. Very similar to a lot of industries during that time, especially with, around food. And as I mentioned, McDonald's was was a touchstone that I think about. What I think about craft beer is it's entirely different. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm sort of sanguine about this. It's just it just it, it to me it sort of uh, completely explodes that that uh, that model. That it's really much more like your local restaurant. Where it's creating something unique, something that's uh, a product of a place and a time, uh, uh, that's focused on a local market, that's built its brand around uh, being um, uh, something different than macro loggers. So in that sense, 
to me, it feels like a very different uh, product. And it's kind of, I wanted to make this analogy about a disruptive technology, but I couldn't quite figure out how to, how to do it. Um, because in some ways, it has disrupted the traditional business model. It totally has disrupted it. I think it's impossible to envision a scenario in which we go back to one flavor of beer. Yeah, and my, an example of this, it, it, I was trying to think of one, and one example might be sort of like Tesla cars, which is, you know, why isn't why wasn't it GM or uh, Ford or Toyota or Honda? Why weren't they on the forefront of producing all electric cars and producing these great cars that people wanted and that had cachet and that really sort of was able to gain traction in the market? Um, Is do you think it's Tesla or could it be the Google car, the self-driving car? <laughs> well, you know that's another. It could be in the future another. But right now, I'm thinking of a, a a company that appears to be successful now and sort of creating this new market out of a traditional old market with something yeah. so, sort of different than what we had before. Um, and it took an outsider to do that. Um, the analogy, of course, isn't complete because it's not the same kind of local. There isn't the same kind of artisanal aspect, but but it's the same kind of disruptive technology that's sort of changing the game for uh, for a traditional industry. Um, so I think that that in many ways, craft beer is a really kind of unique market. There's 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 not a lot of markets that I can think of that are are, are so similar. I always come back to sort of other foods, but the difference with craft beer is it is in essence an industrial product that you can reproduce at a pretty mass scale and it is a big uh, influenced heavily by by scale economies, which is why it's just such an interesting market because the scale economies aspect, as we've talked about many times, suggests that it can't. Uh, always, it, the future is probably not lots and lots and lots and lots of tiny little craft brewers, but that there is going to be winners and losers as we evolve. But it still will probably, I imagine, be uh, there'll still be lots of room for local, uh, local and regional uh, brewers, and particularly in the sort of brew pub model where you're really hyper local. Yeah, one thing I think we can do too. Also, we if we don't have to look at this in a in a complete vacuum because there are examples uh, when I traveled through Europe and, and you were with me in England um, we saw mature markets where this stuff had already played out where you had family breweries and you had uh, national breweries and you had breweries that were owned by multinational chains mm -hmm. and across Europe you you know this is this is typical because um, they've been brewing beer a lot longer we're still 35 years in and most of the people who started their breweries still are owning their breweries they haven't had to come confront that issue of what do I do now? Do I give it to my kid who wants to be a lawyer and doesn't want to do this thing in any way? Mm -hmm. And it's worth maybe some serious money, as we've seen these things sell for millions of dollars. Um, over time, what happens is you end up with a kind of variegated market where you have some old family breweries, mm -hmm. you have some old brand names, but they're owned by big companies. Mm -hmm. um, and it does. I do think, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, it does seem like many of those um, like to choose one example, Lef is a kind of, um, it's a brand owned by the AB uh, conglomerate and it, it's kind of a, an Abbey style ale and it's a little bit insipid. And I think what you see is uh, sometimes these brands kind of slip over time. And I think when people are a little bit anxious about their small town breweries being taken over and the, you know, like Elysian, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, does uh, Jasmine IPA, mm -hmm. are they using maybe a Jasmine tincture? They're not using, <laughs> you know, they're not actually using Jasmine flowers anymore. Or, you know, they're using more, they're cheaper hops or what happens? Or the know? best essence of the uh, chemical, chemically derived essence of Jasmine that food science can produce. Right. Like, the best. Thanks to the labs of AB and Bev. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing. And that's why I, uh, why I think that, that AB InBev has engaged in this strategy is that it just doesn't work. Uh, there's too much competition, there's too much good beer out there, and there's too sophisticated a consumer out there to really make it work, mm -hmm. um, to try and commodify craft beer, take it national, uh, try to cut costs and make it more cost efficient. You know, that's the AB InBev model. You know, you take Budweiser, you figure out how to make it as cheaply as possible, uh, and sell it as widely as possible. It's just such an entirely different model than, than craft beer. Right. Um, that I think that basically this spate of acquisitions is the corporate acknowledgement that if you can't beat them, join them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's basically what they're doing is they're joining this market. And I think that um, the, the structure of the market is such that they can't be bullies. Um, 
they can't dominate the market in the way they could. There's going to be some advantages they offer, but in general, it's still going to be a very competitive local market. Are you ready for a little lightning round, uh, Professor Emerson? <laughs> We've got some questions here yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, put me on the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, let's let, let's run. I want to I want to get to some of these interesting questions on Facebook. Yeah, because, thank you all for for giving us your questions. Yeah. So first of all, uh, first up, we have Ryan Sharp, who I'm going to condense this slightly. Ryan, I hope you're uh, not offended if I don't read the whole thing. He wonders: Is it possible that we're going to see a consolidation and kind of a co-op phenomenon? Uh, happening with uh, little breweries, you know, like um, you could, you know, uh, Burnside and Breakside and Gigantic, say, coming together. Uh, and as he says, to form co-ops or guilds or pool HR accounting or other back office non-brewing departments. What do you think? Is that is that kind of is that something that could happen? Uh, it could, but I, I think I think that the point is that um, you know there are large economies of scale, but that's not where they are. Uh, so, uh, I, I'm trying to resist my uh, instinct to be pedantic and talk about um, the theory of the firm in economics. You're a professor of economics. Yeah. <laughs> Pedan so, pedantism is a given. Uh, by the way, if you, if you want to be an econ major, this is actually one of the really interesting aspects. Like, why do firms start and end the way they are? Why do some firms have high HR internal? And why do some firms outsource HR? It's, it's all very interesting. But um, the point is that the, the economies of scale and brewing is all right, about that is the, pretty boring. Yeah, it is. I know. It's all. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. No, <laughs> it's boring for the pod. No. Oh yeah, wait, oh, in classroom. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Okay. Yeah, uh, so I'm sure that's true. <laughs> uh, the economies of scale is actually in the in the actual brewing itself, in the in the brew house, uh, and in the the packaging and distribution. And so. I can I could imagine that there is some cooperative aspects of that. I think that the transactions costs are going to be just too high in that case, and trying to figure out how to how to coordinate around HR. Um, I can just imagine you know some new a couple of breweries need a new a new assistant brewer, and there's some great candidate who gets that that great candidate, uh, for example. So I don't actually think that's the um, that's really going to be the answer. There is an interesting business model out there. Mm -hmm. um, yes. That's, we talked uh, a little about this. Yeah, uh, and I don't have in in a, in, a, in a professional pod would have done the research. They would have actually had a producer do the research and told me this, but I don't remember the name offhand. But there and, is, and again, potential uh, underwriters. We that's would, right. When AB and Bev comes on, and, and by the way, I'm having a nice, <laughs> this lovely Budweiser. Mm, mm. This is so especial. Mm. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, anyway, we're going to email this pod to. to, to the corporate conscious ABMF. Okay, that's right. Uh, and I, and I speak Portuguese, so I can flog uh, Brahma and uh, Antarctica and Brazil too. So, um, so <laughs> for a triple threat. Uh, okay, I forgot what I was talking about. The new model. Oh yeah, so the new model in in Florida, there is a there is a group that is uh, created basically a a large scale production brewery that is open for craft brewers to come and use and brew and package at scale mm -hmm. uh, their own recipes. So the idea, the idea is the physical plant is there, the infrastructure is there. You come in with your own recipe and your own ideas and we'll brew it at a really cost-effective scale. Uh, I think they package it as well um, and uh, maybe even distribute uh, from, the, from the facility as well. I could imagine, in other words, this co-op model I don't think is really about backroom staff and HR and those little ancillary things that really aren't actually subject to the big economies of scale, but but the co-op could, I imagine, in the future become one of uh, collaborating on a big production facility, for example. Very interesting. I don't know the logistics might get complicated, but it's possible. Yeah, it's interesting. And you point out that um, this is the one way in which brewing is different than other uh, industries the big the, the cost is the production you have to have a, a half million dollar brewery to uh, you know make your product and then you have to it's very heavy and you have to ship it in trucks and get it to the yeah it's interesting i mean take take like the recording industry for example it costs a lot of money to make the the first recording but then you can duplicate it endlessly at almost zero cost right uh and beer uh, it's not like that at all the cost is actually in the production of each gallon of beer is 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 costly so yeah all right, moving on, we have uh, a comment from Dan Cutter, friend of the pod, Dan Cutter, and former student. Is that that's correct? Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he asks, one of Oregon uh, State's finest. One of Oregon State's finest. Go Beavs. Uh, he was a business student, by the way. So, uh, you know, sad but true. Not not a 
didn't go for the econ major, which is um, well questionable choice. Yeah, I'm sure you <laughs> marked him down for that. Uh, he 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 wonders about um, forced scarcity and uh, things like you know um, uh, Pliny the Younger or Pliny the Elder that can make as much of that one as they want, but if there's less of it in the marketplace, so um, it it has uh, it it has this 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 uh, character of being a rare thing, and he says, um, w- would that if we started seeing big companies come in and make a bunch of beer, would that quality of, of scarcity vanish? Yeah, although I actually think that's sort of, I think anecdotally it, it's around, but it's not a big part of the craft beer market. So you've got like the heady topper phenomenon and the Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger phenomenon where you have these beers that come out and they're scarce and they sell for lots of money and they resell for lots of money. And um, But I actually don't think that's, that's sort of the, that's a real... Uh, um, small part of the of the craft beer market. I do think that these sort of one-off beers, these limited edition beers, are a way, are an important way that uh, craft beer companies and brands are able to continue sort of the buzz about the brand that they're innovative, that they produce these interesting things, that people want to go out and seek the brand out. Um, and this is the, sub- <laughs> the subject of another pod, which we can talk about sort of how these craft beer companies have to manage this sort of tension between brewing a single beer, a single popular beer, usually an IPA in this case, in this part of the world, um, and yet still try to stay fresh. Uh, and, um, and it's been a challenge for a lot of beer, especially sort of the, the larger, the larger breweries. Um, but I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's a big deal. I do think that, that, uh, the sort of local and regional identity is a big part. And, and, and that's why I actually, it'd be fascinating to see, but I don't, I don't think that, uh, that for a lot of these acquisitions, Anheuser-Busch or AB InBev is is really thinking about building national brands out of these. I don't think they're going to go and buy 15 local craft breweries and think that they're going to build 15 national brands. There might be one. Goose Island might end up being like something that they take national, but I bet a lot of them they're going to they're going to continue to operate as local and regional brands. And I think what we've seen with uh, Goose Island is a great example. Is uh, they still have scarce products. Um, mm-hmm. When you're making barrel aged stuff, you still can't produce it large quantities so the same the same dynamic applies yeah i guess i guess the obvious question is like would you expect that 10 barrel is going to be you know 10 barrel apocalypse ipa is going to be produced at the you know the fort collins ab inbev brewing facility that's you know goodness knows how many how many thousand barrels is is the brew house um and i I, and i think the answer is, is is likely not let's we're running a little long here, and I want to ask a question. Okay. Uh, I think many people would be interested. You are a uh, a smart economist, uh, and many of us are just well. I'm an economist. Meat, meat, <laughs> meathead beer guys. Um, you sa- you've already said you haven't. You're not too worried about where the future. You know how how things are developing. If you looked, let's say a generation in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, this is basically been a, a gener we've had a generation of craft brewing right now let's look at another generation another 25 35 years mm-hmm. what is what does it look like and uh you know are you are you worried about the future or what uh, what 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 do you see the beer market looking like yeah. in whatever that is 20, yeah i mean <coughs> 2050 the first answer is i'm not at all worried about the future but partly that's because i'm i'm at an arm's length and i can just i think the i think the craft beer industry is going to be fine hmm. um I think that craft beer has established itself as something, uh, as its own product. Um, I imagine that in 10 years, 20 years, I'll go to the local grocery store and it'll be very much like it is now in Portland and probably more like Portland over the rest of the United States in which you have a giant cooler of craft beer and then a few macro lager choices and other things uh, at the end as well. Um, What I do think will happen is that there's going to be a lot of churn in the market. As an economist, I think this is a great thing. And what that means is that um, there's a lot of new entrants into the craft beer market. Some of them are going to uh, succeed. Some of them are going to fail. Some of the ones that are established now will fade. Uh, this is uh, part and parcel of a mature and healthy market. Um, it's not always great if you're in charge of one of those craft beers that's struggling, the craft brewers that's struggling. And so far, we haven't seen a lot of struggle. So I think that there will be some there will be some shakeout, there will be some churn, um, but that's really just a sign of maturity. So mm-hmm. right now we're at this great 
moment where basically almost it seems like an almost can't fail industry and that right. over time it'll mature and it and, and there will be comers and goers and it'll be similar i think not quite as volatile as uh, restaurants are they're famously volatile right. and, fa and have a shelf life that's famously short but it, there will be uh, some of that i mean there, there are brands that will sort of become the newest latest thing and some old brands will sort of get stale as it as it were um but i think that's that's really that that will be a sign that that craft beer has really sort of uh, matured into something that's um, incredibly vibrant and sustainable, not not a scent, not not an aspect of a of an industry that's in trouble. And we can go back to the the first sort of great sh shake out of craft beer, which I think um, signified a bit of a nascent industry that was a little bit shaky. Um, but now I think we're going to end up in, enter into a second phase. I think in the next. Uh, I think in Portland, uh, maybe in the next five to ten years, in other parts of the U.S., it might take longer, where we get these really mature markets, and there's a lot of competition, and there's only so much shelf space out there, and so many tap handles out there that we'll start seeing uh, some comings and goings of, of brewers and breweries. And would you care to guesstimate where you think uh, mass markets position will be, mass market lagers? Will these still continue to be a majority of the, the market, or what do you think? Is craft beer just going to continue to grow and grow and grow? Does it have a ceiling? I don't. Uh, I don't think that. I mean, there's obviously a ceiling somewhere out there for craft beer, but I think there's a, a heck of a lot more space out there for craft beer. A this ton is, more space. This is a question that everybody thinks about because all these decisions about handing over, you know, half a billion dollars, I think, to Lagunitas and all, yeah. you know, that's it, well. This is something actually we never really circle back to. This is a great, great point to, to finish it before we, we finish the pod entirely, which is uh, why are we seeing all of this uh, all of this um, capital flowing into um, craft beer from equity groups and venture capital firms and mm -hmm. things like that? Right. And the reason is because capital finds places of high return, and right now it's been very, very successful. One of the big success stories in industry anywhere, in any type of industry in the United States. And not only that, but super high returns with super low risk. So right. tech is a great thing. It's got enormously high returns, but a lot of risk. You can back you know, 20 nascent tech companies, and one might hit it big, and that's probably good enough if you're a venture capital firm. Here in, in brewing, you don't probably get quite the explosive return you might get, but it's a really solid return. Um, these are very smart companies, and they're and uh, clearly they believe that craft beer is a market that's that's not going away and that's going to continue to uh, continue to evolve. I do, however, think that they probably also think of the fact that backing certain breweries will allow them to grow, and growth is good because of economies of scale. And I do think that's going to be a dynamic. I think there's going to be uh, uh, definitely winners and losers in the sense that there will be craft breweries that grow uh, into fairly large regional, even national breweries, mm -hmm. and those that try and fail to do the same thing. And that is actually not the sign of the apocalypse. That's just how all other markets work. It's all how it works. Fail. And I still think even... Even given that, I still think there's lots of room locally for local brewers. I think the brew pub model is a is a model that's not going away. That's going to be very successful, and it's incredibly local, like at the neighborhood level local. Right. Uh, and I always and there's going to be plenty of room for that. So I think in terms of being a craft beer fan, for example, uh, the future is great. I think you're going to be able to access all these great beers, not just local beers. There's going to be bigger regional craft brewers and even national craft brewers that you'll be able to access from your local markets, plus all the stuff that's around you. So I actually think that the future looks uh, fantastic. Well, there you have it. Uh, we will wait 25 years and see if Patrick is correct. The oracle, the, the oracle of craft, <laughs> craft beer. The, uh, yeah. The, oops, sorry. The prophet of... I just thumped my thing. Yeah, and before we go, I'm going to have one more taste oh. of this exceptional... Uh, Budweiser. Oh, those nice light uh, mm. esters. I'll On have a this. hot day. Mm, this luxurious especial. Mm. Yes. But it's not just Bud. Anybody, you know. That's true. You know, that's uh, true. If if our friends at the Widmer Brothers Brewery, perhaps. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, even even maybe an you're you're not from Oregon. That's all right. We're okay with that. You know, somebody uh, New Belgium. 
Colorado's cool. We yeah, love Deschutes, Colorado. Deschutes might like Deschutes might like to be our our, our sponsor. That's right. Yeah, they they make really 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 good beer. You don't get this kind of content just anywhere. Ninkazi, you hear me? I'm we're <laughs> we're talking to you guys. <laughs> well, uh, even if they don't come, we will continue to pod. And when we do, you can find us uh, at uh, various. Uh, social media and uh, blogging sites. I, you can find me. Uh, I blog at All About Beer and I tweet at Birvana. And of course, I have the Birvana uh, pod or the Birvana blog. The Birvana blog and the Birvana Facebook page, which is probably the best way to get in touch with us. Yes. Uh, I, I tweet uh, at Beeronomics. I also very occasionally these days blog at um, uh, the Beeronomics blog. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us directly via email, the best email to use is the underscore beer at yahoo.com. That's Jeff's, uh, professional beer, uh, email account. Uh, and as I said, the beer on a blog, Facebook page is, um, another great way to get in touch. In fact, that's where our two questions today came from. Yes. Thanks guys. All right. So we'd love to hear from you. And, uh, as we go out, let's, uh, let's toast with our favorite macro beers here. Uh, cheers, Jeff. Um, what would they say in Mexico? I guess. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, sure. Cheers. <laughs> um, Spanish speakers can tell us what I would, should say there. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. In, in Brazil, they say saúde, so saúde. All right. All right. Ciao.